Greetings, my lovable weirdos. My name's Matilda, and welcome to Chantress Reads, a podcast where I read aloud stories of the fantastic and the macabre. If you enjoy what you hear, please consider supporting me on Patreon, as I plan on keeping Chantress Reads completely ad-free. Subscribers will have access to one additional reading per month, as well as the option to request what I should read next. In this week's episode, we conclude our conversation with the newly reanimated Elamistakio. Some Words with a Mummy, Part 2, by Edgar Allan Poe. In regard to the latter suggestions of the orator, it appears that Elamistakio had certain scruples of conscience, the nature of which I did not distinctly learn but he expressed himself satisfied with the apologies tendered, and, getting down from the table, shook hands with the company all around. When this ceremony was at an end, we immediately busied ourselves in repairing the damages which our subject had sustained from the scalpel. We sewed up the wound in his temple, bandaged his foot, and applied a square inch of black plaster to the tip of his nose. It was now observed that the Count... This was the title, it seems, of Alamistakio, had a slight fit of shivering, no doubt from the cold. The doctor immediately repaired to his wardrobe and soon returned with a black dress coat, made in Jennings' best manner, a pair of sky-blue plaid pantaloons with straps, a pink gingham chemise, a flapped vest of brocade, a white sack overcoat, a walking cane with a hook, a hat with no brim, patent leather boots, straw-colored kid gloves, an eyeglass, a pair of whiskers, and a waterfall cravat. Owing to the disparity of size between the Count and the Doctor, the proportion being as two to one, there was some little difficulty in adjusting these habiliments upon the person of the Egyptian. But when all was arranged, he might have been said to be dressed. Mr. Glidden, therefore, gave him his arm and led him to a comfortable chair by the fire, while the doctor rang the bell upon the spot and ordered a supply of cigars and wine. The conversation soon grew animated. Much curiosity was, of course, expressed in regard to the somewhat remarkable fact of Elamistakio still remaining alive. "'I should have thought,' observed Mr. Buckingham, that it is high time you were dead. Why, replied the Count, very much astonished, I am little more than seven hundred years old. My father lived a thousand and was by no means in his dotage when he died. Here ensued a brisk series of questions and computations, by means of which it became evident that the antiquity of the mummy had been grossly misjudged. It had been five thousand and fifty years and some months since he had been consigned to the catacombs at Elathias. But my remark, resumed Mr. Buckingham, had no reference to your age at the period of interment. I am willing to grant, in fact, that you are still a young man, and my allusion was to the immensity of time during which, by your own showing, you must have been done up in asphaltum. "'In what?' asked the Count. "'In asphaltum,' persisted Mr. B. 
Ah, yes, I have some faint notion of what you mean. It might be made to answer, no doubt, but in my time we employed scarcely anything else than the bichloride of mercury. But what we are especially at a loss to understand, said Dr. Pannoner, is how it happens that, having been dead and buried in Egypt five thousand years ago, you are here today, all alive and looking so delightfully well. Had I been, as you say, dead, replied the Count, it is more than probable that dead I should still be, for I perceive you are yet in the infancy of galvanism and cannot accomplish with it what was a common thing among us in the old days. But the fact is, I fell into catalepsy, and it was considered by my best friends that I was either dead or should be. They accordingly embalmed me at once. I presume you are aware of the chief principle of the embalming process. Why, not altogether. Ah, I perceive, a deplorable condition of ignorance. Well, I cannot enter into details just now, but it is necessary to explain that to embalm, properly speaking, in Egypt, was to arrest indefinitely all the animal functions subjected to the process. I use the word animal in its widest sense, as including the physical, not more than the moral, and vital being. I repeat that the leading principle of embalmment consisted with us, in the immediate arresting and holding in perpetual abeyance all the animal functions subjected to the process. To be brief, in whatever condition the individual was at the period of embalmment, in that condition he remained. Now, as it is my good fortune to be of the blood of the Scarabaeus, I was embalmed alive, as you see me at present. The blood of the Scarabaeus, exclaimed Dr. Pannoner. Yes, the Scarabaeus was the insignium, or the arms, of a very distinguished and a very rare patrician family. To be of the blood of the Scarabaeus is merely to be one of that family of which the Scarabaeus is the insignium. I speak figuratively. But what has this to do with you being alive? Why, it is the general custom in Egypt to deprive a corpse, before embalmment, of its bowels and brains. The race of the Scarabai alone did not coincide with the custom. Had I not been a Scarabaeus, therefore, I should have been without bowels and brains, and without either. It is inconvenient to live. I perceive that, said Mr. Buckingham, and I presume that all the entire mummies that come to hand are of the race of the Scarabai. Beyond doubt. I thought, said Mr. Glidden very meekly, that the Scarabaeus was one of the Egyptian gods. One of the Egyptian what? exclaimed the mummy, starting to its feet. Gods, replied the traveller. Mr. Glidden, I really am astonished to hear you talk in this style said the Count, resuming his chair. No nation upon the face of the earth has ever acknowledged more than one god. The Scarabaeus, the Ibis, etc., were with us, as similar creatures have been with others, the symbols, or media, through which 
we offered worship to a creator too august to be more directly approached. There was here a pause. At length, the colloquy was renewed by Dr. Pannoner. It is not impossible, then, from what you have explained, said he, that among the catacombs near the Nile there may exist other mummies of the Scarabaeus tribe in a condition of vitality. There can be no question of it, replied the Count. All the Scarabaei embalmed accidentally while alive are alive now. Even some of those purposely so embalmed may have been overlooked by their executors and still remain in the tombs. Will you be kind enough to explain, I said, what you mean by purposely so embalmed? With great pleasure, answered the mummy, after surveying me leisurely through his eyeglass, for it was the first time I had ventured to address him a direct question. With great pleasure, he said, the usual duration of man's life in my time was about eight hundred years. Few men died, unless by most extraordinary accident, before the age of six hundred. Few lived longer than a decade of centuries, but eight were considered the natural term. After the discovery of the embalming principle, as I have already described to you, it occurred to our philosophers that a laudable curiosity might be gratified, and, at the same time, the interests of science much advanced by living this natural term in installments. In the case of history, indeed, experience demonstrated that something of this kind was indispensable. An historian, for example, having attained the age of 500, would write a book with great labor, and then get himself carefully embalmed, leaving instructions to his executors pro tem, that they should cause him to be revivified after the lapse of a certain period, say five or six hundred years. Resuming existence at the expiration of this time, he would invariably find his great work converted into a species of haphazard notebook that is to say, into a kind of literary arena for the conflicting guesses, riddles, and personal squabbles of whole herds of exasperated commentators. These guesses, etc., which passed under the name of annotations or emendations, were found so completely to have enveloped, distorted, and overwhelmed the text that the author had to go about with a lantern to discover his own book. When discovered, it was never worth the trouble of the search. After rewriting it throughout, it was regarded as the bounden duty of the historian to set himself to work immediately in correcting, from his own private knowledge and experience, the traditions of the day concerning the epoch at which he had originally lived. Now this process of rescription and personal ratification, pursued by various individual sages from time to time, had the effect of preventing our history from degenerating into absolute fable. I beg your pardon, said Dr. Pannoner at this point, laying his hand gently upon the arm of the Egyptian. I beg your pardon, sir, but may I presume to interrupt you for one moment? By all means, sir replied the Count, drawing up. "'I merely wish to ask you a question,' said the doctor. 
You mentioned the historian's personal correction of traditions respecting his own epoch. Pray, sir, upon an average, what proportion of these Kabbalah are usually found to be right? The Kabbalah, as you properly term them, sir, are generally discovered to be precisely on a par with the facts recorded in the unrewritten histories themselves. That is to say, not one individual iota of either was ever known, under any circumstances, to be not totally and radically wrong. But since it is quite clear, resumed the doctor, that at least five thousand years have elapsed since your entombment, I take it for granted that your histories at that period, if not your traditions, were sufficiently explicit on that one topic of universal interest, the creation, which took place, as I presume you are aware, only about ten centuries before? Sir, said the Count Elemstegio. The doctor repeated his remarks, but it was only after much additional explanation that the foreigner could be made to comprehend them. The latter at length said, hesitatingly, The ideas you have suggested are to me, I confess, utterly novel. During my time, I never knew anyone to entertain so singular a fancy as that the universe, or this world, if you will have it so, ever had a beginning at all. I remember once, and once only, hearing something remotely hinted by a man of many speculations concerning the origin of the human race, and by this individual the very word Adam, or Red Earth, which you make use of, was employed. He employed it, however, in a generical sense with reference to the spontaneous germination from rank soil, just as a thousand of the lower genera of creatures are germinated. The spontaneous germination, I say, of five vast hordes of men, simultaneously upspringing in five distinct and nearly equal divisions of the globe. Here, in general, the company shrugged their shoulders, and one or two of us touched our foreheads with a very significant air. Mr. Silk Buckingham, first glancing slightly at the accipit, and then at the sincipit of Elemstachio, spoke as follows. The long duration of human life in your time, together with the occasional practice of passing it, as you have explained, in installments, must have had, indeed, a strong tendency to the general development and conglomeration of knowledge. I presume, therefore, that we are to attribute the marked inferiority of the old Egyptians in all particulars of science, when compared with the moderns, and more especially with the Yankees, altogether to the superior solidity of the Egyptian skull. I confess again, replied the Count with much suavity, that I am somewhat at a loss to comprehend you. Pray, to what particulars of science do you allude? Here, our whole party, joining voices, detailed at great length the assumptions of phrenology and the marvels of animal magnetism. Having heard us to an end, the Count proceeded to relate a few anecdotes, which rendered it evident that prototypes of Gaul and Spurzheim 
had flourished and faded in Egypt so long ago as to have been nearly forgotten, and that the manoeuvres of Mesmer were really very contemptible tricks when put in collation with the positive miracles of the Theban savans, who created lice and a great many other similar things. I here asked the Count if his people were able to calculate eclipses. He smiled rather contemptuously and said they were. This put me a little out, but I began to make other inquiries in regard to his astronomical knowledge, when a member of the company, who had never as yet opened his mouth, whispered in my ear that for information on this head I had better consult Ptolemy, whoever Ptolemy is, as well as one Plutarch de Facilune. I then questioned the mummy about burning glasses and lenses, and, in general, about the manufacture of glass. But I had not made an end of my queries before the silent member again touched me quietly on the elbow and begged me for God's sake to take a peep at Theodorus Siculus. As for the Count, he merely asked me, in the way of reply, if we moderns possess any such microscopes as would enable us to cut cameos in the style of the Egyptians. While I was thinking how I should answer this question, little Dr. Pannoner committed himself in a very extraordinary way. Look at our architecture, he exclaimed, greatly to the indignation of both the travellers, who pinched him black and blue to no purpose. Look, he cried with enthusiasm, at the bowling green fountain in New York, or if this be too vast a contemplation, regard for a moment the capital at Washington, D.C., and the good little medical man went on to detail very minutely the proportions of the fabric to which he referred. He explained that the portico alone was adorned with no less than four and twenty columns, five feet in diameter and ten feet apart. The Count said that he regretted not being able to remember, just at the moment, the precise dimensions of any one of the principal buildings of the city of Asnac whose foundations were laid in the night of time, but the ruins of which were still standing, at the epoch of his entombment, in a vast plain of sand to the westward of Thebes. He recollected, however, talking of the porticos, that one affixed to an inferior palace in a kind of suburb called Karnak consisted of a 144 columns, 37 feet in circumference and 25 feet apart. The approach to this portico from the Nile was through an avenue two miles long, composed of sphinxes, statues, and obelisks, twenty, sixty, and a hundred feet in height. The palace itself, as well as he could remember, was, in one direction, two miles long, and might have been altogether about seven in circuit. Its walls were richly painted all over within and without, with hieroglyphics. He would not pretend to assert that even fifty or sixty of the doctor's capitals might have been built within these walls, but he was by no means sure that two or three hundred of them might not have been squeezed in with some trouble. That palace at Karnak was an insignificant little building after all. He, the Count, however, could not conscientiously refuse to admit the ingenuity, magnificence, and superiority of the fountain at the Bowling Green, as described by the doctor. Of the fountain at the Bowling Green, 
nothing like it, he was forced to allow, had ever been seen in Egypt or elsewhere. I here asked the Count what he had to say to our railroads. Nothing, he replied, in particular. They were rather slight, rather ill-conceived, and clumsily put together. They could not be compared, of course, with the vast, level, direct, iron-grooved causeways upon which the Egyptians conveyed entire temples and solid obelisks of a hundred and fifty feet in altitude. I spoke of our gigantic mechanical forces. He agreed that we knew something in that way, but inquired how I should have gone to work in getting up the imposts on the lintels of even the little palace at Karnak. This question I concluded not to hear, and demanded if he had any idea of artesian wells, but he simply raised his eyebrows, while Mr. Glidden winked at me very hard, and said in a low tone that one had been recently discovered by the engineers implored to bore for water in the great oasis. I then mentioned our steel, but the foreigner elevated his nose and asked me if our steel could have executed the sharp carved work seen on the obelisks, and which was wrought altogether by edge tools of copper. This disconcerted us so greatly that we thought it advisable to vary the attack to metaphysics. We sent for a copy of a book called The Dial, and read out of it a chapter or two about something that is not very clear, but which the Bostonians call the Great Movement or Progress. The Count merely said that great movements were awfully common things in his day, and as for progress, it was at one time quite a nuisance, but it never progressed. We then spoke of the great beauty and importance of democracy, and were at much trouble in impressing the Count with a due sense of the advantages we enjoyed in living where there was suffrage ab libitum and no king. He listened with marked interest, and in fact seemed not a little amused. When we had done, he said that a great while ago there had occurred something of a similar sort. Thirteen Egyptian provinces determined all at once to be free, and so set a magnificent example to the rest of mankind. They assembled their wise men and concocted the most ingenious constitution it is possible to conceive. For a while, they managed remarkably well. Only their habit of bragging was prodigious. The thing ended, however, in the consolidation of the thirteen states with some fifteen or twenty others into the most odious and insupportable despotism that was ever heard of upon the face of the earth. I asked what was the name of the usurping tyrant as well as the Count could recollect. It was Mob. Not knowing what to say to this, I raised my voice and deplored the Egyptian ignorance of steam. The Count looked at me with much astonishment, but made no answer. The silent gentleman, however, gave me a violent nudge in the ribs with his elbows, told me I had sufficiently exposed myself for once, and demanded if I was really such a fool as not to know that the modern steam engine is derived from the invention of Hero through Solomon de Kaus. We were now in imminent danger of being discomfited. But, as good luck would have it, Dr. Pannoner, having rallied, returned to our rescue and inquired if the people of Egypt would seriously pretend to rival the moderns in the all-important particular of dress. The Count, at this, 
glanced downward to the straps of his pantaloons, and then taking hold of the end of one of his coattails, held it up close to his eyes for some minutes. Letting it fall at last, his mouth extended itself very gradually from ear to ear, but I do not remember that he said anything in the way of reply. Hereupon, we recovered our spirits, and the doctor, approaching the mummy with great dignity, desired it to say candidly, upon its honour as a gentleman, if the Egyptians had comprehended, at any period, the manufacture of either Panoner's lozenges or Brandreth's pills. We looked, with profound anxiety, for an answer. But in vain. It was not forthcoming. The Egyptian blushed and hung down his head. Never was triumph more consummate. Never was defeat borne with so ill a grace. Indeed, I could not endure the spectacle of the poor mummy's mortification. I reached my hat, bowed to him stiffly, and took leave. Upon getting home, I found it past four o'clock, and went immediately to bed. It is now ten a.m. I have been up since seven penning these memoranda for the benefit of my family and of mankind. The former I shall behold no more. My wife is a shrew. The truth is, I am heartily sick of this life, and of the 19th century in general. I am convinced that everything is going wrong. Besides, I am anxious to know who will be president in 2045. As soon, therefore, as I shave, and swallow a cup of coffee, I shall just step over to Panoners and get embalmed for a couple of hundred years. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Chantress Reads. Until next time, good night.